Welcome, everyone, to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? I'm doing good, man. I just uh, had an entire week in LA and a lot of sun. I'm a little sunburned and it feels amazing. Yeah, I stopped counting the number of pictures I saw of you and your GF uh, on the beach with some with some nice food. And I was like, wow, that reminds me of Southern California. That must have been nice. Dude, it was so nice. And honestly, the beaches were empty, uh, which was pretty incredible because it was a holiday weekend. But there was a, there's some there's some signs that said like you know only activities allowed you know you have to like go running or go into the water you're not allowed to lounge but people were just lounging and the lifeguards weren't saying anything about it that's pretty cool yeah that's kind of a weird rule to enforce like I lounge at home with my roommate why would we not go lounge on the beach together if we so chose that's kind of weird they just Especially don't want it your to girlfriend. be hus- they just don't want it to be hospitable to people like you know gathering mingling. Dude, okay, yeah. I saw on my Instagram feed, I saw a guy who was in Arizona who was in the middle of what looked like a fucking frat Vegas-style pool party, and there were, like, hundreds and hundreds of people all in this, like, Vegas-style pool-looking area. Ironically, with this sign in the background saying, please maintain six feet of social distancing, which absolutely no one was doing, and I messaged him. He usually responds to me whenever I whenever we chit-chat on Instagram, and he usually responds to me, and I... And I uh, send him a DM saying, was this just now? And he didn't respond to me because he totally knew exactly what I was getting at. It was ridiculous. Some, some people are like, I get, I can understand. Well, no, I can't understand you declining to wear a mask and stuff like that. You should definitely be wearing a mask, but then also fine. Like tons of people are declining to wear masks, but like Jesus, a fucking like 200 person pool party in Arizona. Like what the fuck is going on? So, I mean, I, I think that Jason Williams has this exactly right. There's three cohorts. There's unhealthy people that are going to isolate themselves. I've just gotten acquainted with Uber Eats and uh, Zoom and never having to leave the house. You have people like us who want to get back to normal life but are unwilling to take massive risks. Then you have young people usually and really hard neck people who are like, fuck everything. This is a scam. No mess. Want to just go back to life. Everything is that so far has been a lie. So, uh, I think I've definitely seen some truth to, to those three cohorts. And, uh, it sounds like you just encountered one of them. That's definitely true. Or, or a couple hundred of them that I saw. Through <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. So, I mean, not too long ago, you said that if, if the bars opened and there was a rager that you'd be there. Yeah. Yeah. But I wouldn't, yes, I I would be there. But then I talked to my sister about that same concept uh, too. And maybe that's just a, um, maybe this is only relevant to being in Seattle where all of Seattle is taking it seriously. But then she said that like, even if the bars do open up, like they're not going to open up for everyone, right? They're going to, they're going to like remove every other table you're still going to have to wear masks. It's not going to be fun. And so like when I said like, I'm totally going to the bars the day they opened up, I imagined like everyone just like flocking to the bars. Arizona style. Arizona style. Right. And so, and, and like, I wouldn't imagine that happening today. I would imagine that happening in two, three, four or five months. And the day that happened, I would probably go. But if you're living in Seattle or, or New York or places that are taking it seriously, like when the bars open up, they're not going to open up and open up their doors. They're going to be like max capacity of like 30 or 40 people or something. 
Yeah. Um, and this kind of reminds me, I was talking to my mom and I have a younger brother who's still going to public school right now. Um, and she was like telling me how concerned she is about how ill-equipped all these schools are to enforce social distancing and mask wearing and all this kind of stuff. And I think come like August, September, uh, socialized schooling and, and socialized public school is, is literally going to fail in front of everyone's eyes. Either that or they're going to go back on all social distancing rules and recommendations. But it, like, I don't think that people will talk about this enough, but it's going to be like no one is equipped to, to deal with this. And like schools are going to be the weakest link for preventing COVID spreading because like kids don't take that seriously. Not at all. Like they they are cost benefit risk reward analysis parts of their brain are not formed at all. And so like the schools are going to should be along the lines of like bars opening up. Like let's take, let's take the kids of like 500 to a thousand different families from all over a neighborhood in a particular city and put them inside the same spot for six hours a day, five days a week, and then send them home. Like, that is the and they're kids. They're kids who can't measure it and and practice these these good behaviors. Like that's that's going to be the worst thing to open up. They're just going to come last. Uh, so yeah, you're. Totally it, right. It's also needed because everyone and their fiat job requires uh, state supported, uh, mm-hmm. you know, babysitting for your young they children can. all the yep. way to your young adults. Yep. You know, all the way mm-hmm. all the way till they graduate, they need they need babysitting which the state uh, provides. And I don't know if they'll be able to provide it to a sufficient degree. Like, you know, when everyone is healthy, like sure, public school is mm-hmm. enough, but social distancing in the classroom, 10% budget cuts across the board, um, needing to wear masks, like it's just, it's going to be a disaster. Speaking of state-sponsored stuff, is the money, print, is the money printer still going burr or what's going on with that? Um, yes, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty so, sure it is. There's, I mean, I, there's, there's pretty much ongoing, uh, ongoing repo market activity nonstop and ongoing asset purchases that, you know, fit the definition that they d- prescribed that they can change at will. Well, so, okay, yeah, repo, I mean, it's, repo it's purchases by aren't, the day. Real pur- repo purchases aren't money printer go burr, but asset purchases are right. Well, I mean, all of it is kind of like tricks in order to reallocate liquidity. Right. So I would right. consider it all burr. Really? <laughs> yeah. At, at one point, does the number... Okay, okay. so the, I, I have a, a legacy finance roommate who you know, um, who is very bullish on the stock market because, um, because of the money printers going burr. Like, like it doesn't really matter about the fundamentals it, it's all about the fed and and so mm-hmm. he and he just said something that i've started to chew on a lot where you know just predict what outcome benefits rich people and place your bets there and that i think is a pretty interesting way to view markets in the world at large that makes sense um it shows how, cor- it shows how corrupt markets are right now yeah. um but then on the other side of things, like on all the other uh, podcasts, crypto and outside of outside of crypto podcasts I listen to, like everyone is in disbelief as to this V-shaped recovery being sustainable. And so like I'm kind of pulled in two different directions. 
Well, I think like we are seeing uh, the emperor without no clothes, without clothes on. Um, you know, we see that, and everyone is admitting that stock asset prices have nothing to do with reality; has everything to do with monetary policy, and uh, it's becoming really obvious. I don't know. I think the more I don't, I don't the know when money... it's going to matter. I don't know when it's going to start mattering. I, I I think the more that the Fed money prints. At some point, it just there's a straw that breaks the camel's back, and then people be like, people are asking, okay, this is fucking ridiculous. How do I express this opinion of my belief that this is fucking ridiculous? And the only answer is for that that people know about in the legacy world is Bitcoin. Like, and at some point, Bitcoin is just going to go up, just because like for people that don't give a fuck about it just because they're seeing this and they never really thought about it at all before, but they're going to see $20 trillion get printed over the next two months or something. And they're going to be like, this is fucking weird. What do I do? Oh, I'll guess I'll just buy this Bitcoin thing without any second thought. Well, they're also going to see just uh, pain and suffering across the board and then record high asset prices. Mm-hmm. And then it's just going to be like, What? Um, it's not but, it's not even a v-shaped recovery it's a checkmark shaped recovery like it's a downward yeah, it like a and then a fucking it's a fucking nike swoosh it's like a nike swoosh upwards at least not not for all stocks but for some stocks like amazon it's a literally like a nike swoosh recovery dude stuff like amazon was a good buy on my part um stuff like uh walmart never went down <laughs> they never went down jesus um so uh we can keep we can keep riffing on this uh i've been putting my money where my mouth is at and i've been dollar cost selling out of index funds and stuff like that especially as we've like gotten back like i definitely sold the bottom and i kept selling all the way up so i don't know i'm I'm really like i'm really hoping that my experience watching the 2017 bull market fall apart helps me you know take advantage of this, but I'm trying not to sell too fast, but I'm definitely selling. And I know that uh, your roommate has made his bet and we are, have been going back and forth about it for a while about, you know, why dollar cost selling is the way to go. I, I feel like he's buying the top. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I just don't pay attention to legacy markets nowadays uh, because, because they make no sense. And like everyone says like, you know, buy into the markets that make sense to you. And I feel like I have like a, a good grip on the crypto markets, at least much more in comparison to the legacy markets. Um, and uh, like, and he, he is right in the sense that he's placing his bets on what he thinks the Fed will do. Because how else do you measure those markets? Like what else is left? Like he's big on Disney and he's, he's really big on Disney. And he's big on like Amazon probably. But like really he's big on the Fed. Like that's really yeah. the fundamental. He's, he's big substrate. on S and P. He's just long, right? Yeah, he, he, he's big he on the rich that, people making bank. Yep. We'll it's see what happens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to argue with that. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of on, kind of on. You know, you focusing on crypto. Um, really, when I've been focusing on crypto, for me, it's like obviously Bitcoin, really big. Um, and then uh, a little bit of Ethereum, like, you know, talking to David, just seeing 
the activity there, it, it kind of, for me, it makes sense to kind of be allocated. I do have a little bit of decred um, just because like it, like their messaging makes sense to me as an altcoin and as like some sort of like a hedge. Uh, but we have uh, Seth Simmons come on to this podcast to talk about Monero. There's been a lot of issues and a lot of commentary around cryptocurrency and Bitcoin privacy specifically, especially around a really, really old UTXO. That's a Bitcoin coin that was like from the first month of mining um, that was moved. Um, and, you know, of course, everyone is immediately on it and is like, hey, this UTXO moved. And you're like, hey, you know, are Bitcoins fungible? Mm-hmm. You know, are these old UTXOs? Like clearly people know that this is an old legacy you know, UTXO from a OG miner, an OG person. Um, so uh, privacy is, is something that we need to think about, especially long-term. Uh, personally, hearing out what Seth had to say about Monero, I'm not convinced from like a monetary policy and perspective uh, in Monero, but it is interesting to, you know, get his thinking on like why privacy is so important in a money and why he's bullish about Monero. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, it really, I think the question boils down to is, does, because in, in my opinion, and I think that I've seen this echoed throughout the crypto spheres, that the main chain, the L1, the substrate that all these crypto systems run on needs to be a store of value. Like it has to be a valuable asset and the more valuable, the better. Like literally it cannot be too valuable. And really the question with Monero and privacy coins is that does privacy at the main chain enable that or not? Uh, and, and that's kind of the stuff that we, we get into with this episode. And I first bring up that criticism, the common criticism that everyone's heard of is like, how do you audit the supply if the supply, if the, if the chain is private? And I learned something that I had not learned before that it turns out that uh, auditing Monero is more or less trivial like it's much, it's difficult, more difficult than it is for Bitcoin or Ethereum or any other non-private main chain. But as soon as Monero would become this ultimate store of value in the, in the way that a, a Bitcoin type asset would be, then still auditing that supply is relatively trivial. Uh, it's, it's a little, one so, step removed. I, mean, moved. I have to push back on that though, right? So mm-hmm. of course you're, you're auditing it with cryptography, but there's a lot of attack vectors that could corrupt that that monetary policy along the way, especially because Monero uses rough consensus and hard and coordinating hard forks. That two combination, I think, is really bad from a monetary perspective. And a reason why I'm kind of uh, skeptical about Ethereum and all the praise that has been uh, Put upon its theoretical monetary policy just because like what makes these monetary policies real decentralization and not being able to coordinate away the monetary policy so if you are coordinating a monetary policy that in itself is kind of uh you know mm-hmm. defeats the purpose of the decentralized system yeah and i can see i can see that take um i and the, the, I, I talked about this in the episode where, you know, there are some aspects of Monero that are very Bitcoin-like and some aspects of Monero that are very Ethereum-like. One of them being the willingness to hard fork in improvements and iterations and changes is very Ethereum-like. Um, now, where I would differentiate Ethereum 
hard forks from Monero hard forks is that Ethereum hard forks to me make more sense. Like we're, when we hard fork, we're doing more important things. And when Monero hard forks, it's doing preemptive hard forks of changing the uh, consensus algorithm, like the actual, um, the, I don't know, what do you call it? Like the SHA-256 equivalent for Monero, like yeah. up, updating the hash- that. Hashing algo. The hashing, hashing algorithm, updating that like preemptively and like really ahead of necessity. Uh, and, and in my opinion, putting the cart before the horse in case with, with Ethereum, it's, it's doing things kind of by necessity. Uh, at least that's, that's my take. Uh, and so while they're, while both chains, um, do hard forks to update, um, there's a, a difference in the, in how valuable those hard forks are and then how much is necessitated by those hard forks. Um, so that's a differentiator I would put between while these two systems kind of operate the same, there's also some differences as well. Yeah. I mean, again, I think where all of us can agree is that more opt, like just, you know, privacy by default, uh, more people using privacy technology, more people opting into the privacy features of, you know, whatever chain they use, especially Bitcoin and Ethereum, they both have, options to improve privacy like all of that is going to be necessary and we're going to need to work really hard to make it even more accessible um so maybe monero has a place place to play there maybe it doesn't um again it's just hard like every time you introduce a new money and a new monetary system and a new monetary standard like that is you know kind of running uphill against gravity which is going towards you know the one monetary standard or the dominant monetary standards Without further ado, let's just get right into this. This is Why Monero with Seth Simmons. All right, guys. So welcome to POV Crypto. Uh, this is CK. We got, of course, uh, at Trustless State, David with us. And then uh, St- Seth Simons. Is that correct? Simmons, um, but you're close. Sorry, you're close. sorry. Seth Simmons. Person in the space, uh, I've been interacting with him on Twitter a decent amount. Um, he's going to be here to talk a little bit about Monero. And uh, there's a lot of kind of like subtle undertones about privacy these days. It seems like it's emerging as something that's important. And uh, Seth thinks that Monero is relevant and we should be paying attention to it. So let's just kick it off. Seth, why don't you kind of introduce the audience to yourself and, you know, what's your shtick and why you're here? Yeah, yeah, sure. I'll go and dive right in. Um, so I'll just go into my background a little bit. Um, I got into the space at the end of 2017, right at the the peak of the bubble. Um, and it blew up right when I joined. And I have been in bear market since like, I think I was in the bull for like two weeks and then have just been in bear market since then. Um, so it's been a bumpy ride, but it's been a good chance to to learn and not get caught up in the hype and kind of get into the nitty gritty details in the meantime. Um, so yeah, I totally got in it to make money at the beginning. I had no technical interest in the space. I didn't see Bitcoin as um, sovereign money or anything like that. Wasn't too concerned with it. And then actually got into Monero via mining um, in mid-2018 because that was the way to get rich quick back then. Um, <coughs> a lot of money on some GPUs, jumped into mining. And as soon as I got in, I, I dove into the community um, just for help mostly and to chat a little bit about the mining space and realized both, one, the community was really technical and helpful. Um, it was a bit surprising because the other kind of uh, 
times that it interacted with communities of other coins, it was pretty much either kind of like shilling or like kind of harsh maximalism. So it was nice to get into a space where people were pretty helpful. They were technically inclined, but they were they weren't just kind of kicking you out if you disagreed with something or um, didn't understand something. But um, got into mining that way, started falling down the Monero rabbit hole and kind of started to get bits and pieces about why why it existed, why it needs to exist, um, and why privacy is important in the space. Um, privacy as a whole has been something that's been really important to me for a long time, but especially over the past year and a half, um, not just in cryptocurrencies, but just kind of been jumping into a lot of different topics, learning about why personal privacy is important, um, why it really should be a right, and it's not something you should have to kind of like beg and plead for from companies or governments, but you you deserve privacy. It's a human right and something that we all need. Um, so yeah, dove into that um, and have been, I guess, in the Monero community since about like May 2018, um, but just getting more and more active as I as I go. Um, yeah, I guess overall, I'll jump into Monero a little bit. Um, I guess the main reason why I see its importance um, in the space is not just for privacy. I think a lot of people kind of put it in this privacy coin category and they say like, oh yeah, you got you got Bitcoin, sovereign money, you got your Ethereum, your um, program, programmable money or um, world computer, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then you have Monero and Zcash and all those, you know, those privacy coins. They're just good for if you want to send a private transaction, you don't need to worry about them for anything else. Um, and really have come to understand that not only is privacy an aspect of it, but it actually underlies all of the things that you need in sovereign money. Um, so to me, Monero is really Bitcoin with a lot of the technical issues fixed um, and a community that's been willing to quickly iterate through a lot of progressions. Um, there's been a lot of technological advances um, and just a lot of governance um, changes that have had to happen throughout to make sure that the things that happen happen when they need to. Um, and to make sure that Monero doesn't ossify too quickly. But um, yeah, any initial questions off that or? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I actually think that today's a, a great day of uh, for this episode on the day that a, a Bitcoin <laughs> block that got transferred from 2009 happened yeah. on the blockchain. And then all of Twitter is talking about that transaction and we're all speculating on who that may be. Like, was it Adam Back? Was it Satoshi? Like, who, who was it? Uh, so the context for this, I think, is pretty good. Um, before, as we get deeper and deeper into Monero and some of the mm -hmm. things you said, I kind of you, you said you went down the Monero rabbit hole, mm -hmm. and that's something that everyone does with their respective uh, cryptocurrency. So each rabbit hole, I would I guess, is different, right? Like Bitcoin has its rabbit hole, Ethereum has its rabbit hole. So can for the people that haven't gone down the Monero rabbit hole. When you do go down that hole, what do you find that you may not find in other uh, cryptocurrency nations? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the biggest thing is it seems to me, and obviously I, I wasn't around in the space back in like the early early days, like the beginning of Bitcoin. But from everything I've read and people I've talked to who were around then, um, it seems to me that the Monero community has kind of rekindled a lot of the ethos that the early Bitcoin community had. Um, it's very cypherpunk, um, generally pretty technical users. Um, and it's really people that are driven not just to make money, people that are driven not just to um, kind of see number go up, but people that really want to see a tool created that gives people freedom. It gives them an opt out, not just for money, but also for financial privacy. 
um, which is an essential thing and it's something that's being very quickly eroded and we're seeing I think a big step forward in kind of the surveillance state with um, central bank digital currencies and a lot of the stuff that the Fed's wanting to do with um, like Fed-owned bank accounts where every bank account connect through them. Um, I can't remember what the name of that was, but things like that. Um, so I think the the main things that you see that are different in the Monero space are that kind of cypherpunk ethos. Um, there's no, I, like I have hardly ever run into like moon boys or anybody who are really in it for speculation. Um, I'm even like, I'm probably most active in an IRC channel that's Monero markets. And so the goal is price discussion. Like that's what we're there for. And even then that's not really the focus a lot of the time. Um, a lot of it's just discussing stuff that's going on in the space. But really what you find is people that want to make a good tool, people that want to see it improve. And a lot of people honestly that have been turned off by the the inability for Bitcoin to iterate, the inability for Bitcoin to implement features that um, have even been created for Bitcoin. Um, and they really see that Monero has been willing to make those changes that are necessary and has kind of hedged their bets and done a lot of things opposite of Bitcoin um, in ways that obviously we think are smart long-term um, and there's even disagreement in the community, but things like the tail emission, um, things like dynamic block size, and even the even just privacy by default is controversial in Bitcoin. Um, so that's those are probably the big differences. So I guess it's really tricky to talk about like something as being a Bitcoin 2.0 because like none of the you know even with said features like none of the other emergent properties exist necessarily, and the emergent properties are are arguably even more important than any of the technical properties. Um, but I'm curious to get your take on what are Monero's fundamentals that make you one bullish about the technology, but two, you know, potentially, you know, I'm assuming you're still bullish about the price as well. Like uh, yeah. number go up is a, a very important part of the adoption cycle and um, the incentive structure on these things. Yeah. Um, I guess I'll just jump into kind of the core features of Monero and kind of what differentiates it from from Bitcoin. Um, an initial fact that is important for people to know is it's not just a code base fork of Bitcoin. Um, a lot of people think that it is, but it's actually a completely separate code base called CryptoNote um, that was started sometime in like 2011, 2012 by some um, outside researchers, kind of like Satoshi. We don't know who actually came up with the CryptoNote protocol. Um, but so it's, it's not a code fork. It's completely different, completely different protocol. Um, and kind of the things that make it um, I'm, that make me extremely bullish on it. And a lot of people are really privacy by default um, because it builds a base that everything on top of it is made more secure by. So because you have privacy by default, anyone who interacts with any wallet on the Monero blockchain is getting really strong privacy guarantees. Um, generally the best in the space, there are some advantages to like Zcash's approach. Obviously they have a trusted setup and they have privacy that's opt-in, not opt-out. So there are issues there, but just the knowledge that if I send anything in the Monero blockchain, I know that I'm gonna have really good privacy by default. It's not perfect, there's new ones, but really good privacy by default. Um, and that helps the store of value narrative because we know that we have fungibility. Fungibility is a key thing that's gonna become uh, kind of a hot topic in Bitcoin soon and already has in bits and pieces, but just the knowledge that one Monero actually does equal one Monero and there's no distinguishability. Um, 
I mean, like you mentioned, the the Satoshi coins or someone coins from really early on that moved today. The fact that that's even possible is terrifying to me. Like that we can have uh, Twitter bots watching the Bitcoin blockchain and alerting us whenever a large amount of Bitcoin moves, whenever there's a inter-exchange transaction, whenever the miner who was mining in 2009 decides to move coins. It's really, really uh, negative for Bitcoin. And like, I mean, we even saw a price dump because of speculation, probably because of speculation around these early coins moving, which is, uh, it's just kind of mind blowing that people like being able to see that data. I mean, I understand the voyeurism, it's cool to see, but if you're the one sending that that Bitcoin, that's a pretty big deal. Like, what if he wasn't selling them, but yet his Bitcoin became less valuable just because he moved them on chain? Like, that's a pretty crazy feature to have there. Um, so yeah, fungibility, privacy by default, those are really key things. The other one is uh, a, kind of a set of hedges against scaling issues in Bitcoin. Um, we've, we've definitely seen over the past... Uh, what, 10 days since the halving fees kind of skyrocketing. But Monero has taken a few different approaches to help with that problem. Obviously, we're not there yet, either in Bitcoin or in Monero, where we're kind of at the limit of emission and seeing how important fees are. But there's a lot of projected issues with Bitcoin long-term because the block subsidy eventually reduces to zero. Um, and in Monero, the kind of ways that we hedge against that are tail emission. So in Monero, there will always be a 0.6 XMR per block emission um, to infinity. So yes, that means that there is some inflation, but that inflation actually asymptotically goes to zero. So over time, you will essentially have zero inflation, um, but some at the beginning. The important thing to remember there, though, is that means that TX fees can stay low. Um, we're not relying totally on tra transaction fees to secure the blockchain long-term. Um, and because of that equilibrium that we can have now between block subsidy long-term and transaction fees, there's a feature in Monero called dynamic block sizes, which essentially it's very complex, but basically blocks can scale infinitely, but with very strong, um, uh, sorry, very strong kind of cuts in rewards for miners if they try to mine two larger blocks too soon. So essentially it incentivizes slow, steady adoption on the blockchain and the blocks can scale without uh, human intervention. Basically we don't need a governance change. We don't have to have a block, uh, block size debate. The block sizes will just continue to scale as adoption grows and miners will be incentivized to keep an equilibrium and adjust block sizes up and down as uh, usage grows. So. Yeah, those are probably the biggest things that make me bullish on it. I mean, it's just, it's just good sound money that has privacy by default, which I view as a, a non-starter. If there's not privacy by default, I don't think that long-term survival is is happening. Okay, so there's there's a couple ideas that I want to uh, that we went through. One was privacy by default, privacy at the L1, and then also tail emission and, and security. Uh, and it's funny to see where all of these different values uh, intersect with other chains and, and then also not with other chains, right? So like the long tail emission of, of XMR in the blockchain and also flexible block space is both found in Ethereum, right? Uh, and, and that's kind of cool. Um, however, what is not found in either Bitcoin or Ethereum uh, and what, where I'm going to push back on is the uh, sound moneyness of a privacy at the L1. Uh, because, in my opinion, uh, sound uh, the all blockchain systems need a sound money 
uh, price go up mechanism in order to work in the long term. Mm -hmm. And I, I think there's a fundamental impossibility with a, a privacy, a, a private L1 that no one can audit the supply of and the ability for that number go up narrative. Like sound, sound money requires you the uh, assurances, the certainty, the guarantees that you own a sh a, your share of the network and you're never going to be inflated away. Like that's underpins, I think, any and every successful crypto system. And so that's my biggest concern is privacy at the L1 does not allow you to do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's probably the most common response I get that's to a lot of my sure. tweets on Twitter, to a lot of the interactions mm -hmm. that I have with people outside of the neuro community is, mm -hmm. well, you can't audit it, so we can't have this. Um, but I think what a lot of people don't understand is the Monero blockchain is completely auditable. I can audit it right now. I can prove how many coins are in existence at the moment. Really? The only difference is... That in Bitcoin and Ethereum, everything's plain text. So I can, mm -hmm. I could take a napkin and I could just do the math and figure out exactly how many Bitcoin or Ethereum is in existence. It's mm -hmm. very easy, very simple. There's simple cryptographic principles in play that make sure that those things stay set, even though issues can happen. I mean, Bitcoin has had that where they had um, inflation, but obviously it was detected and then they rolled back the chain. Um, so yeah, in Monero, you can audit the chain. It's constantly being audited. Everyone who's running a node is auditing the supply um, with every block that's produced. The difference is the because amounts are hidden by default, the slight risk is hidden inflation. So if someone was able to break either the cryptographic principles underlying um, range proofs, which are the key thing that tell in every transaction, this is how much money I'm sending. It's a cryptographic primitive that can let you prove that you're sending a certain amount with actually revealing the amount that you're sending. And so if that was broken, either cryptographically, which would be a really big deal for a lot more than just Monero. But if right. one of those things is broken cryptographically, that would be obviously a big problem. And then if it was broken via implementation bugs, and that's really the big risk is if there was an implementation bug with the range proofs in Monero, there could be inflation and it would be harder to detect because the chain is not transparent. So I can't just see, oh, this block created 5 billion Monero. Obviously, there's a problem. We need to do something about it. Um, but A, that hasn't happened. There have been some small bugs that have happened in the past that have been able to trick other users into thinking that they have more Monero than they actually do. And those were all detected on chain. Um, but yeah, the, the real key is there could be an implementation bug. But again, it's something that the Monero community is committed to paying for multiple audits every time we change up the range proofs and other features within and these are all third-party audits, to make sure that we have everything as set as possible. Obviously, we can't make sure that nothing bad will ever happen, just like Bitcoin and Ethereum can't make sure that nothing bad will ever happen, but we're aware of the risk there, and we're all paying out of pocket to make sure that these audits happen and that we, we have all of the things in place to be as, as mm -hmm. sure as possible that they're set. So, so the idea that you can't audit the supply of XMR, is that just like 100% wrong? Yeah. Like, is that just a factually incorrect statement? Yeah, it's something, oh, honestly, okay. that I've just run into a lot in the Bitcoin space where that gets thrown at me, but it's just, it's factually wrong. Well, so, but it, it's not factually wrong because like you mentioned, there is room for cryptographically hidden inflation, right? So you can cryptographically audit the supply, but if there is some issue or bug in the system, there is room to for hidden inflation because it's not plain text, because 
you cannot just see straight up how much um, how much uh, XMR exists. Um, there is a cryptographic component. So um, I think that maybe like you know the extreme like it's obviously a nuanced thing, but uh, it's still not the same as as a straight public blockchain. It's certainly not as easy. I think the the nuance that needs to go on there, and there's a there's a really good um, Monero blog post that was put out kind of walking through how audibility works in Monero, Bitcoin, and Zcash, I think was the other example used that people should go read if they want to know more. But the, the important detail is it is auditable. It's more difficult, but it's done by relatively simple cryptographic principles that audit it all the time. You don't have to audit it. And you can actually go in using your note and audit the current supply. But yes, there is that small risk of hidden inflation. And just, just like has happened in Bitcoin before, there could be inflation, but yeah, the, the risk is in Monero if that inflation happened and it wasn't detected and no one ever saw the bug, then you could have an issue mm-hmm. where there are more Monero in existence than people know about. Um, and that's why it's so important that A, we keep getting really good audits and B, that really smart people keep working on the Monero blockchain and come over and, and get paid in Monero to do dev work for Monero. So. I kind of want to jump in because you use like the fact that you have a node as a way to protect against inflation and ensure that the rules that you want are being run and stuff like that. But I think that there's a limit to how far Monero strategy can actually go in terms of effectively coordinating hard forks. Like you have a lot of these advantages of a community because you're still small and nascent as Monero, you know, seeks to serve the world its community will become untenable and it'll be very difficult to coordinate. And then all of a sudden, a lot of the features that you like are not going to actually exist. Um, What happens with governance? Like I think Dave and I discuss how governance can be a limiting factor to social scalability, the ability for lots of people to be a part of the system. Um, Like what happens to governance then? Like how does that nuance kind of play into your your long-term view of Monero? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely an important one. Um, and it, it has been a lot easier to do the hard forking that has happened so far in Monero's blockchain because we're relatively small. I mean, we are a, a very big community compared to most um, coins outside of Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, but yeah, the, the, the size of the community has definitely helped with that. Um, and a little clarification, and you didn't mention this, but Monero has been on this kind of six-month hard fork cycle for about a year and a half, um, started right when I jumped on, I think in April, 2018. Um, and it just ended in October when we deployed a new proof of work algorithm called RandomX um, that should be ASIC proof, that's the goal, um, so that we don't need a hard fork anymore. So if there are no more scheduled hard forks at this point. Um, the goal is hard forks as needed for very big feature releases that have to change consensus. But we're not gonna be doing kind of the four six month changes um, that were being done due to to proof of work and kind of trying to work through the ASIC resistance part of Monero, which is one that's definitely contentious even within the Monero community. But um, yeah, as we grow, it will become definitely more and more difficult. I mean, I think that's part of why Bitcoin has struggled to implement a ton of features because they can only do it via soft work. Bitcoin will never hard work, I don't think. and that really limits what you can do and just kind of the contentious community overall makes it really hard to get any kind of consensus, even rough consensus about even simple features like Schnorr and Taproot. Or, or it enables what you can do, aka social scalability. 
Yeah, but if social scalability comes at the cost of ossification and you just make sure that Bitcoin never changes in the ways that it needs to change. I feel like a lot of people think that Bitcoin is already the perfect money. And I think there's a lot of things that still need to be worked out. And it's not there yet. I think we're way too early in this cycle to say that we've we've done it. We only need to make these little tweaks from here on out and we're good to go. So I want to actually, sorry to do this, but I want to go back to privacy really quick. Um, so imagine a world where there's Bitcoin and then there is the Lightning Network on top of Bitcoin, which enables, I don't know if this is true, I mean, I think it is, that enables a, sufficient, a sufficiently strong amount of privacy. Like, like the, uh, not Monero level, because Monero, to my knowledge, Monero is basically as private as you can get, but like pretty, pretty damn close. And so basically from a user perspective, accessing privacy via a second layer on Bitcoin is trivial and accessible and that privacy is strong. In that world, what would be the role of privacy at, an, at the L1, at the base layer? Why would we really need that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's something that I've been trying to kind of work out um, over the past probably like six months, just kind of thinking more about why is L1 privacy important as opposed to just building it on layers after that. Um, and I've come across some really good reading. I mean, part of why I'm a little bit worried about Bitcoin privacy, even with things like Lightning, is that so far Lightning has shown itself to be very, very um, at risk of civil attacks. And if you just write enough nodes and connect to enough nodes, even those using Tor, if they're publishing channels or even hiding channels, you can figure out what people are doing on chain relatively simply. Um, and it was with a very low node count too. So there's definitely a but lot in the of theoretical example where, where that implementation of whatever the L2 doesn't actually matter, but you get the privacy. Well, I guess that's what I'm getting at is I, right. I, I worry that if you build L1 as a transparent base layer, that you have tons of issues building anything on top that actually mm -hmm. improves on the privacy because even within Lightning, or if there's another side chain, or even with Liquid, if for example, you have the issues of you're still having to transact on chain. If you're opening channels on Lightning, you're still having to transact on chain, exposing amounts, exposing what you're doing. And if you're like pegging in and out of Liquid, it's still happening on chain. Yes, when you go off chain and Liquid, you have confidential transactions and some things that help you out there, but then you still have to peg back out onto Bitcoin. And you, you run into this problem where every time you interact with the base layer, you leak a massive amount of data about what you've been doing off layer. Um, and there's some just some really good reading that I've been doing on that. But basically just the idea that if you refuse to build privacy into the base layer, then you end up not being able to build anything that's truly private on top, even if the solution is really good because you constantly have to be dipping back into this fully transparent base layer. Um, the solutions that you build on top of them struggle. So, I mean, we don't have a ton of time. There's a lot of things I kind of want to jump into. Um, yep. I'm kind of curious, again, like with the, the uh, with Monero, uh, there is a massive concern around uh, scalability. Um, one, you know, obviously the block chat, the, uh, each transaction with the ring transact, or the ring confidential transactions are mm -hmm. quite large compared to, um, you know, another blockchain transaction. Um, and then, like you said, the blockchain itself is actually can grow exponentially um, or it can grow to infinity. Um, so blocks themselves can become huge. Like, are there any like 
issues or concerned around like the actual size of the Monero blockchain and how that affects um, the performance of the network? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, it's top of mind for everyone in the Monero space. Um, there's a, a group within Monero called the Monero Research Lab um, that essentially focus on doing um, scholarly research on all of the different pieces of Monero. A big part of their focus has just been on getting transaction size and verification time down. Um, and there have already been massive changes. I mean, even just rolling out bulletproofs, which was something that I think Andrew Polstra and others came up with for Bitcoin a long time ago. Um, even getting those implemented dropped transaction size, I think it was like 80%. Um, and now Monero- Did it also create a massive bug? Bulletproofs? Yeah. No, that was there was a tiny key image bug that basically allowed um, a sender to trick someone into thinking they had more Monero, but there was actually nothing happening on chain. It was a way that the wallet interpreted key images, which are key images are kind of synonymous with UTXOs in Bitcoin. Um, but I don't, I can't remember if that was due to bulletproofs or not. I do but know there, that there was, there was uh, an issue with bulletproofs. So that maybe that was it. I didn't look too deeply into it. I think that's it, but I'll have to double check. Um, I can't remember exactly which one happened with that. Um, but work like that, and then like there's some new work on um, new protocols around Ring CT, like Ring CT 3.0. There's one called Tripditch. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and one called Arcturus, all of which are kind of under going through deep review, both code level and um, academic research to figure out which one serves the blockchain the best. And the goal there is just to keep getting transaction size and verification time down. And with specifically Arcturus, Triptych, well, all three of them, Arcturus, Triptych, and RingCT 3.0, it's a mouthful. Um, all of those will allow us to drastically increase the anonymity set of every transaction while actually still reducing the verification time and the transaction size. So things like that are constantly happening. It's definitely, we know that we're at risk of having issues in the future because it takes longer to verify transactions and transactions are larger. They're about four times larger right now than a Bitcoin transaction. Um, but we know that that needs to change. The community is fully on board with that. We've already made changes like this before and we'll continue to, to pay for and fund really good research and to pull in research that's happening outside of Monero. Um, that's one of the things that I feel like Bitcoiners say a lot that they can just implement anything that happens in a altcoin. Um, but Monero has really done that. They've implemented a ton of features that were built for Bitcoin that never got implemented. And they're constantly, we're constantly going through research trying to figure out what will help Monero scale, what will help Monero become what it needs to become to provide a, a privacy tool and a, um, a way for financial freedom for people. I'm pretty bad, David. Sorry? You sound really bad. I sound really bad? How bad? Yeah. Like, really? staticky, yeah. Um, I, I have another question. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about how Monero is being used today and, like, what the uh, Monero ecosystem looks like? I do know that Monero is, like, a base trading pair with Bitcoin um, on a lot of, like, DEXs and stuff like that. Um, people use Monero to try to like do a pseudo coin join. Um, what else is going on around Monero and how are people using it today? Yeah, um, I definitely, I don't have the greatest answers for that. Um, I'm not too involved in kind of the merchant adoption side or that kind of thing. Um, 
but the definitely the key usages that I've seen are um, darknet markets. I'm not too involved in that side, but I've heard that they're pretty large. And like the, I think what just became the largest darknet market is um, Monero only, doesn't even accept Bitcoin. Um, and an interesting thing there, no matter what you think about darknet markets, Bitcoin's adoption took off in darknet markets. That was kind of where it became what it is. Um, and it's also what led to a lot of the price appreciation that happened. Um, so I think it, it's a good adoption metric and it's also a good metric for how good the privacy is. Because people at the fringe, whether they're criminals or not, I'm not going to get into that, but people at the fringe need these things first. And then people like myself, we need it last. So we build the tools, we see how it gets used by people on the fringe, and we continue to improve it until everyone eventually needs it. And then it's what we need. Um, so that's definitely a big part. Um, it's like, it's really popular on BISC, um, one of the kind of most well-known DEXs. It's peer-to-peer -peer trading. Um, we wouldn't even call it a DEX, I guess, but peer-to-peer -peer trading. I think last time I checked- it's it was order like, book? Yeah, basically, yeah. Um, last time I checked, I think it was something like 85% of the volume on BISC total was XMR BTC. Um, it's pretty much everything that's happening on there. Um, and then we've seen good adoption with, uh, I think Globy is a company that does like, kind of like um, BTC Pay or uh, those kind of retail POS things. Um, there's integration via Globy with um, a good few sites and it's definitely smaller compared to Bitcoin. I mean, I'm not gonna lie, it's definitely a lot less than that. Um, we're nowhere well, I'm less, I'm less interested in like merchant adoption and I'm more interested in like user usage. Like are users hodling Monero? Are users you know, is there a high velocity between Bitcoin and Monero to store value in Bitcoin, get into Monero to mix and or, you know, go shopping on a darknet market and then back? Like what's, what's kind of like the trends there? I think for the most part with people I've interacted with, it's hodling Monero. It's using Monero for some transactions for buying some stuff, but mostly accumulating Monero. I mean, again, we're, we are definitely in the speculation phase, even in Bitcoin, but I think that's probably the primary use. I've heard people talk about using Monero as kind of a mixer for Bitcoin, going Bitcoin, Monero, Bitcoin, and using that as a way to kind of like supposedly make Bitcoin fungible. Again, you still have issues there where you leak a lot of information when you go into and out of Monero. So you end up with a lot of kind of heuristic metadata leakage, but um, that's not Monero's fault, but it's because you're going transparent on both sides. Um, well, what if you're just trying to get someone, someone else's UTXOs? <laughs> that would definitely work. I mean, that's uh, yeah. the, the only way is to get fungible Bitcoin right now or mine them or get them from an exchange. And that's about all you can do at this point. So, um, yeah, I, I think we're, we're definitely seeing some usage. We've seen, like I tweeted out about, um, I think it was a couple weeks ago, maybe a little over a week ago, but um, on-chain usage hit an all-time high. So it's, there's never been this much transaction volume. But again, because the, train, the chain isn't transparent, we can't really easily see what it's being used for. And that's really a, a pro. That's something that you want. I, I don't want to be able to say, well, look, we can see that 97% of transactions are just XMR going into and out of exchanges because I can't figure that out. How do I sound? You sound way better. Cool. Um, so as we wrap this up, I just kind of want to ask about privacy at large. Uh, in your introduction, you talked about why privacy is so crucially important. Can you kind of give your ethos and your pitch of privacy as a concept? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so it's pretty simple, honestly. It's something that we all take for granted day in and day out um, and something that we've kind of started to give away for free stuff. Um, a big kind of 
place where you see privacy is important is in your house. Obviously, you don't want people watching in your house. A lot of people are still hesitant to get indoor security cameras and that kind of thing because they're not sure what's going to happen. Um, and that kind of idea and the idea that uh, creativity really only happens when you have freedom to be yourself without someone watching. Um, and just the idea that when you actually need, like need, need privacy, like life or death need privacy, it needs to be something that's there. Um, has become just kind of uh, really important to me and seeing this not just in cryptocurrency but even in like what are the tools that we're using are we on facebook are we on twitter even are we um using google services all the time basically who are we giving away our data to and what are they going to do with it now what are they going to do with it in the future um knowing that yes even though right now giving your data to google may not be that harmful yet they're going to sell it to some ad agencies and do some stuff with it but in the future, all that data could be leaked and used against you. You could end up being in some kind of um, targeted group in your country, whereas, again, you might not be now, but in the future, maybe you're part of some group and the, all the information that you've freely given up throughout the years kind of comes back to haunt you. Um, but people need tools to be able to opt out of this system where we've kind of built a surveillance state. Um, kind of built surveillance capitalism, especially in the US. And we need tools to be able to get out of that. Tools like Tor, tools like Monero, I think. Um, and even tools like Bitcoin, it's really, it's strong sovereign store of value money. It works well now. I have worries about it long-term. Um, and Ethereum, if DeFi can really take off and become what it's supposed to be, having those ways to have kind of a financial ecosystem outside of the general financial space, um, especially if privacy becomes a key part of that, could really be a powerful way for people to take back their privacy in all kind of aspects of life, um, which would be pretty great to see. Awesome. Well, Seth, thank you for coming on and sharing your thoughts. Uh, I've, I've learned, I thought I knew about Monero, but it turns out I didn't know as much as I thought I did. So thank you for giving us your time. Yeah. Yeah, it's been great. Seth, if people want to learn more, where can they find you? Yeah, probably the easiest is um, just hit me up on Twitter at Seth I. Simmons. Um, just feel free to shoot me a DM there if you have a question or tweet at me. Um, I'm always happy to just kind of answer questions, educate. That's kind of my space. I'm not I'm not a coder, so I'm not really improving Monero that way, but I'm wanting to be in the space to help other people and to learn myself. So always happy to have a chat there, but that's probably the easiest place. It's a funny question to ask a privacy-focused person. Where can we find you? <laughs> Yeah, and that's okay. one of the reasons I've chosen to not be pseudonymous is I, I want to be kind of a human face right. in the Monero community and, yeah, and in the cryptocurrency space. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, every every chain needs those. So good on you, sir. All right, you guys can follow the podcast at POV Crypto Pod. You can follow me at Trustless Estate, both on Twitter and on Bankless. Christian? Yep, you guys can follow me at CK underscore Snarks. Thanks for watching.